1: We have a lot of fiscal things to talk about today. We've got the Irish budget coming up next week. Uh, In classic fashion, the usual rhetoric and media storm has been occurring over the last few days. Much of it is just noise, which we can safely ignore. But there have been one or two snippets of real information. One of them was published, uh, I think, at midnight last night or thereabouts, and the Irish Times is leading on it today, at least in the business pages with a story that says that this pre-budget white paper reveals a dramatically improved fiscal position. We kind of sort of knew a bit about this, obviously, as the monthly exchequer returns, which we discuss, come out through the course of the year. But the news is pretty dramatic. The, the difference between what the last document like this was expecting, what the government was expecting really at the beginning of this fiscal year, compared to the likely outturn now, with only three months to go, is pretty dramatic, isn't it? Can you talk us through some of the headline numbers?
0: Yes, it it is, Chris. Um, Every year on the Friday night at midnight before the budget, uh, the Department of Finance releases what it's called the Estimates of Receipts and Expenditure for the Year Ending. Okay, Um, It's also known as the Pre-Budget White Paper. But basically what that is, it, it takes the tax and expenditure data that is available up to the end of September. It extrapolates that forward over the remaining three months of the year and then comes up with an estimate for the full year. Um, the figures contained here do not build in any budget day changes. So on Tuesday night, uh, you know, these figures will change somewhat because some of the measures that are introduced actually happen at midnight on the night of the budget. Uh, others uh, won't happen until... Um, January 1st or in the case of some of the carbon tax increase next may. Uh, but so it's it's important to say that but it as I say it gives an estimate of receipts and expenditure for the full year. and the dramatic piece about it is that it's now forecasting a 13.1 billion general government deficit last October when the 2021 budget was produced, they were targeting a general government deficit of twenty point five billion. So it's an improvement of um, over seven billion. And um, the reason, and, and there are, I, I guess, no real surprises here. Um, I didn't think they would be projecting this low. Um, I knew it would be significantly lower than the twenty point five. But um, the, the the key couple of messages out of it, and we've seen all year tax revenue buoyancy picking up. Um, and they're projecting now that this year we will collect 65.7 billion in taxation. That's an increase of 15% on last year. And if you consider the context for this, you know, for the first half of the year, um, our economy was operating under significant level of restriction. So this is quite an amazing performance. The, does, it, uh, does it feel yeah.
1: sustainable to you, Jim? Well, if you look at
0: where the tax revenue buoyancy is coming from, okay, um, three tax headings accounted for just under 85% of the total tax take in the first nine months of the year. So income tax accounts for 40.2%. And it is worth pointing out, and I was checking it this morning, in 2006, just before the crash, income tax accounted for 27.2% of the tax take. It's now over 40%. The second item is VAT. And sorry, I should explain, I guess, what's happening on the income tax side is that we have an incredibly progressive tax system, as we know. Um, You know, a a relatively small cohort of the working population pays the bulk of income tax. So that is a progressive income tax system by any stretch of the imagination.
1: Unless unless you're no O'Toole, of course. Well, unless
0: you're no O'Toole, or there's, there's a few others out there with a similar view, okay? But the, the point is um, that all, all of the damage to the labour market in the last 18 months was basically in the lower paid end of the market where very little income tax is paid anyway, whereas those who pay the bulk of income tax continue to earn in the main during crisis and hence the income tax receipts are so strong. The second piece is VAT which accounted for 27.1% of the total tax take. Um, very strong and what that reflects really is the rebound in consumer spending but particularly the rebound in new car sales which were up by almost or oh, just over 19% in the first nine months of the year. And the third piece then is corporation tax, which accounts for 17.6% of the tax take. Um, We collected $11.8 this year, which was a record high. We are going to collect um, something higher this year, which obviously will be another record high. So um, is it sustainable? Well, uh, there's no reason why um, two of those three tax headings should not continue to deliver buoyancy. That's the income tax side and the VAT side. Um, the jury is out on the corporation tax piece because the OECD deal that was agreed, or uh, well, that was signed last week, it remains to be seen the implications of that for our corporation tax revenues. But it's, it's a story, Chris. The overall public finances is just a story of incredible tax buoyancy and 67.5 billion to be collected this year, which is by far... The highest level of tax that was ever paid in this country, and on the expenditure side, expenditure is still growing three four percent per annum. With social protection, which accounts for over forty percent of total current spe- of total government spending, you know, still going ahead strongly because of well, COVID obviously has had an impact there, um, and then health spending is also very strong. But the deterioration in our public finance, the thirteen billion deficit or thirteen point one billion deficit. A lot better than would have been projected. But the reason why it's there is because of spending rather than tax revenues.
1: Sure. So we got this uh, 136 nation agreement on corporation tax designed to deliver 150 billion of extra revenues. And we'll come back to that in a minute. First of all, I wanted to talk to you about the politics of the budget and the politics of the 7 billion extra that the government has almost suddenly discovered that it has. If I was a coalition backbench TD right now, I'd be saying, look, we're 10 points behind Sinn Féin in the polls or or some amazing number like that. uh, You've got an extra 7 billion. For God's sake, seize the narrative back from Sinn Féin and spend on the economy, give people their money back. And in particular, the way in which you seize the narrative back from Sinn Féin is that you spend all this money on housing and health. What's wrong with that backbench TD's feelings?
0: Um, Absolutely nothing, to be perfectly honest. The the political logic is very strong. Um, You know, housing and health are clearly the two biggest issues. And um, I guess, and one can never be certain about this, in the very strange political climate we live in here and virtually everywhere else at the moment, um, you cannot take it for granted that if they did pump a lot of money into those two sectors... That the electors would actually reward the government for doing so. But I think it would be a risk worth taking because, as you said, health and housing are the two big issues. And I have no doubt that particularly housing will be the platform on which the next election is fought. And um, if, if I was in government and if I was that backbencher, I'd be strongly arguing, let's try and take some of the ground from under Sinn Féin by starting to address in a significant way this housing problem obviously one of the challenges would be if you even if you do spend a lot more money on housing do you have the capacity to deliver what is required um the central bank last week was forecasting that this next year we would deliver around 31,000 housing completions approaching the 35 to 40 thousand we need that would represent significant progress if it were to happen. But the government could actually subject that caveat about capacity constraints in the construction sector, it could start to deliver that. What the narrative from the Minister for Finance at the moment, Pascal Donahue, is that 4.7 billion package has been put aside for this budget. He said that. Firstly, in July, and has repeated since. 4. But surely that was
1: based on old numbers that are just wildly out of date now.
0: Yes, it, it, it was indeed, Chris. But um, why stick said, with them? Well, he said up on very recently. He is sticking with it, and that within that uh, one billion would go on additional expenditure measures to be announced on budget day. Um, and I would expect the two key areas of focus there will be on state pension side number one and the social welfare package generally. And secondly, um, childcare. There's going to be a lot of money thrown at childcare to try and address the um, labour shortages in the market. Um, I So I, I don't know the answer to this question. Uh, Pascal Donoghue is a pretty conservative minister for finance because if you think back to the last budget before the February 20 election, October 2019, um, you know, the public finances were in reasonably good health, uh, the economy was doing reasonably well, and he decided, for reasons of prudence, to introduce a very conservative budget. And some in Fine Gael that I would know well have, have suggested that that was the reason why Fine Gael got such a hammering in the February 20 election. I I, I don't know what's going yeah. to happen. But, the, 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 yeah. old, the
1: old cliche in politics is that it's the economy, stupid. That was the, uh, from the Clinton era in the United yeah. States that we got that phrase. And I wonder whether that's still true. I, th- I think that it's still partially true, but there's something else in the modern era that's going on. One of the things that's important to control, apart from the economy, is the narrative. You've mentioned that word several times. I mentioned one of my favorite political commentators earlier on, Fintan O'Toole. If you read Fintan and other writers in the Irish Times, like Una Malali, and if you listen to Sinn Féin, you would, from a narrative perspective, be forgiven for thinking that you're living in Ireland in some kind of dystopian hellhole. I was listening to a piece on BBC Radio the other day about the corporation tax reforms, and this radio program began almost inevitably talking about Ireland, because Ireland obviously has been a focus of attention in these corporation tax reforms. And this BBC radio piece began with the words, Ireland is one of the most prosperous countries on earth. You're laughing. That narrative is not present in Ireland, which I find extraordinary because it is a fact. Ireland is one of the most prosperous countries on earth. And yet if you listen to the political opposition and also some of those prominent commentators that I mentioned and others, you are living in a dystopian hellhole. What is extraordinary for me is that the the government, the people who have been responsible for creating this most prosperous country on earth are unable to wrest the narrative back. Narrative is important, as, as we know, from Trump's America and Brexit Britain. Uh, the story is more important than the underlying facts. In Britain, we, the, the, the narrative has changed recently to one of, well, we always told you Brexit would involve short-term pain for long-term gain, and you're getting the short-term pain now, And the narrative is seeming to to work. I don't know how much longer it is. And of course, we know all about Trump's narratives. So somehow or other, the coalition has got to wrest the narrative back from the dystopian hellhole thing that is so often incorrectly, in my view, and in the view of the BBC, uh, incorrectly peddled. So it's got to be more than simply throwing money at it. Their PR, their narrative, the creation of the narrative, it's difficult to get it back once you've lost it. But certainly part of it has got to be spending money on health and housing, because that's where the dystopian stuff comes from, is that we are assailed every day by how hellish the housing crisis is, how hellish the Irish health service is. So obviously it has to be improved. But the story around it, the way in which the coalition talks and deals with the Sinn Féin narrative, that also is the tricky part of this piece, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it it really is, because at, at the end of the day for parties like People Before Profit and Sinn Féin, and I actually wouldn't put the Social Democrats or Labour into this category, but for Sinn Féin and People Before Profit, uh, there is no incentive whatsoever to solve the housing problem, to solve homelessness, and and to stop spinning this narrative of misery because that's where they get their votes from. So they're, they're obviously... Uh, devoting massive effort to get that message out there and to keep it out there. And, you know, you mentioned Fintan O'Toole, you mentioned Una Mullally, and there's lots of others. They continue to drive that narrative for whatever reason. But um, you then look at you know, somebody like Stephen Collins, um, who writes in the Irish Times, well, he's he's retired now, but he still contributes to the paper, political journalist, um he would have a much more upbeat assessment of Ireland, but every time he puts in an article, it's amazing to see on social media the hammering he gets. So people who are spinning the misery story are definitely dominating the narrative here. And um I I, I just don't know how you can actually get around that fact. My hope would be I mean, I, I would I live here and I'm 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 aware of the challenges, you know, the housing situation the health situation. But as long as I remember, regardless of how the economy was doing, there are always these challenges out there. Life is never perfect. And if you look at any country in the world, um, even France, which is deemed to have by the World Health Organization, one of the best health systems in the world, people complain about it. There are always problems in every society, even the great Scandinavian model um, does have its problems. That's a really interesting perspective about Ireland being one of the most prosperous countries on earth. Uh, it's not a perspective, Jim. It's a fact. Well, it's a fact. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Uh, there is, of course, uh, the question about the distribution of that economic activity because uh we've we've often discussed this and I think it's something actually we need to devote a bit more attention to in a future podcast but the whole gdp story here but gdp as a measure of economic activity uh is obviously seriously exaggerated in an Irish case but gdp also tells you nothing about how the economy is distributed because you could have an african nation that is very rich in minerals that can have a very high gdp but 2% of the population control that GDP. I'm I'm not saying for one moment that Ireland fits into that category. It does not. But um, I I, I think the challenge um, to make this sort of prosperous country into one that is better to live in, if you want to put it that way, is to address this redistribution problem. I, I really think that if you sort of Implement stuff like Slaunchy Care in the health service. If you continue to push the housing agenda, um, if you address issues like childcare, I actually think that those things will succeed in actually balancing out this prosperous country into a country that feels prosperous for a lot more people. But the whole this whole negative narrative, is not going away because. If Sinn Féin suddenly stood up and started spinning the story that Ireland is doing really well. You know, we're getting t- on top of our housing problem. Suddenly, their reason for being disappears. So yeah. it's uh, it's, so,
1: it's tricky. So it's about resting the narrative back. And part of that must be devoting more resources to house building and getting a better health service. And that will involve both a different organisation, different set of institutions to to manage and run these sectors and different rules, different regulations, different people, probably better management of these two areas, and and of course, more money. But it must also involve the message. And I keep going back to this narrative point, which is that you know the success of Donald Trump, the success of Boris Johnson, tells us, if we didn't know it already, that you've got to control the narrative. And the extraordinary thing about the coalition is that they've allowed Sinn Féin to control the narrative. So if I was the coalition, the first thing I would do is whoever I've got doing my PR, whichever agency or internal set of people doing the PR, fire them all and get a better story out there and hammer away at it. Think about ha- how your messaging, how your comms is working. and Because it, it, there is a lot of truth. There are a lot of good things happening. Now, you don't fall into the trap that an old British from a long time ago, an old British prime minister called Harold Macmillan fell into the trap of telling the British people you've never had it so good. And of course, there's a danger here that I'm urging something like that. It's got to be more subtle and, and more believable than that, because obviously a lot of people do suffer from lack of housing. A lot of people do suffer from an inadequate health service. But there are a lot of people who don't. There are a lot of people who do have good housing. There are a lot of people that uh, are not suffering from, from the housing. So you've got, you've got to address both segments. You've got to make things better. And you've got to remind people, about what they actually do have. And it's about comms and PR. And that's not something you solve overnight. But certainly if I was the coalition, I would have a very serious look both at the resources that we're throwing at this sector and utilizing this extra money that has magically appeared, because it could magically disappear as well, uh, but also fire all my, my comms and PR people because they're not they're not doing it for you. you. You know, you're allowing the opposition uh to run with the old newspaper adage, which is that misery sells. It's it's time for a radical PR campaign.
0: Yeah, you've really got me thinking, Chris. Um, There is a two to three year window in theory before the next general election. Okay, Um, should the government and I I am a fiscal conservative? Okay, I would be sort of arguing that yeah, careful management of the public finances because just because borrowing costs are at historically low levels at the moment. Uh, and just because international bond markets are very positively disposed towards Irish debt at the moment, uh, that's not a good enough reason to go out there and spend aggressively and run big budget deficits that we need to be restoring order because international bond yields will eventually go up. They will. Uh, at some stage, international confidence in Ireland may dissipate like it did back in 2010 for whatever reason. But not, notwithstanding that sort of fiscal conservatism on my part, um, how would you think of the notion of basically the government just goes for it over the next two or three years, run big deficits, pump money at housing and health, as you say, and um, then even if they did lose the next election, suddenly you have a Sinn Féin government dealing with a massive public debt, a massive hole in the public finances. Is it a risk worth taking, I wonder, from a political perspective?
1: Emphatically, yes, uh, is my view, because the mythical dystopian hellhole that is so often described, which is not how I would see Ireland today, quite the opposite. If you want to create one, then you elect a populist government. Because if you look at the United States today, uh, there's there's a wonderful article from a couple of weeks ago. It's behind a paywall, unfortunately, by Robert Kagan in the Washington Post. And it's all about the constitutional crisis that America is currently in. And it's because Trump is going to come back. And he's going to come back, you know, with a vengeance and he will take his vengeance on on America. And America is so divided in the ways that we see almost every day. Uh, Britain, I can tell you, has a dystopian feel to it today because of this culture war, this division that Boris Johnson in particular thrives on. Uh, You don't have any of this in Ireland, but you don't you haven't so far elected populists who focus entirely on the narrative and don't have any focus on the detail about actually making people's lives better. So if you want to focus, if you want to create this dystopian populist thing, then just go ahead and elect a populist government. And we know who they're going to be, don't we?
0: Yeah, um, it's interesting. Um, Neil Stanich has a very interesting podcast on The Stand with Eamon Dunphy, um, which went up today, I think. Uh, talking about Trump and what's going on in the States at the moment. But going back to that whole messaging piece and trying to control the narrative, um, I mean, Trump really got that with Steve Bannon, for example.
1: Yeah, they yeah. understand the importance yeah. of the narrative. Yeah. Now, the hope that I have as somebody that lives in Britain and, and is, is a huge fan uh, and admirer of the United States is that eventually the populist thing will burn itself out when they are revealed never to actually improve the lives of the people that they get to vote for them. But so far, in Britain at least, uh, despite the obvious difficulties, the empty shelves, the energy crisis, uh, the fact that Britain's, if you're an average householder in Britain, your heating bill over the next 12 months is going to go up. This is the office, uh, the regulator, Ofgem, uh, said this only yesterday. that Your heating bills are likely to go up by at least a third over the next year and it could be more it could be much more than that if current energy prices are sustained or god forbid that they go up anymore none of this seems to dent the popularity of the, of the incumbents in britain because they've got control of the narrative and uh, you in my opinion for long-term political success the right thing to do is to have control of both again i come back to this point about the coalition that if they if they want to. Uh, If they want better PR, maybe they should employ us to do it for them, Jim. What do you think?
0: Communication wouldn't be my strong point, Chris. I'll pass on that. Oh, I
1: disagree with that, Jim. What are we doing here?
0: (laughs) At one o'clock on Tuesday or just after one, um, Pascal Donahue will stand up to deliver the budget and he'll be followed by the Minister for Public Expansion Reform, Michael McGrath. And um, I, I guess going back to the real world rather than sort of postulating about what would be possible. But going back to the real world, knowing the two individuals involved, uh, they're likely to, I think, adopt a more conservative approach to the public finances, despite what's happening in the economy and in the public finances. But um, I think what I'll be looking for in that budget to see how a number of areas are addressed and handled. You know, one is the control of the public finances, you know, what they do on spending and taxation. Secondly, is trying to address this very strong dual economy that has emerged, the really strong multinational sector, the much more struggling um, indigenous SME sector. So what is done for the SME sector always interests me. Um, winning the economy off the various supports, the EWSS, the pandemic unemployment payment, the COVID-related supports, in other words, um, how they proceed with that, what they do in terms of housing. And I know we saw last Monday the National Development Plan being published with quite a bit in there on housing, but let's see what's said about housing in the budget, uh, how they take on board the corporation tax deal um that the OECD is pushing at the moment that still has a lot of hurdles to cross before it sees the light of day, not least the EU um, transposing of those tax changes into EU law at some stage next year. And of course, what's happening in US Congress in relation to corporation tax, Uh, labour market shortages um, in some sectors, particularly hospitality, retail, Labour shortages are very apparent, but not just in those sectors. So it'll be interesting to see what, apart from childcare, they do to address that problem. Uh, There is the whole climate change agenda, and um, the carbon tax is going to go up by €7.50 per tonne. That has been highlighted two years ago. They've given us the transition out to 2030. But let's see what other climate change measures are in there, such as changes to the VRT treatment of cars. For example, the external environment and particularly uh, the upward pressure on energy prices and commodity prices generally, how that's impacting on the cost of living and how government responds to that. So I think all of those factors will be, in theory at least, what should drive the overall complexion of the budget on Tuesday. We can we can talk Tuesday night and see yeah, exactly we will, what exactly.
1: I thought you were going to put it back to me when I talked about... Seizing back the narrative. Well, what would you do, Chris, when the government hires you on this incredibly high hourly rate as a PR consultant to seize back the narrative? What would you actually suggest? And I would start with pointing out that uh, I, you hinted at this earlier on that the housing problem has a number of aspects. The first one is that it's very complicated, and Sinn Féin have got to stop saying all you've got to do to solve the housing problem is vote for us because we've got a magic housing wand. Secondly, as part of that complication, is that housing is a global issue. The tech companies that all operate in Ireland would be very familiar from the housing issue from their home bases back in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. And they fully understand that this is a global issue with global causes. Sinn Féin's pretense that this is an Irish issue with exclusively Irish causes vastly oversimplifies it and really patronizes people uh, when they they tell them that we we can solve it. So tell people exactly what the nature of this problem is, tell them what we're going to do to try and solve it, but point out just how complicated it is and how simplistic the solutions that are being dangled in front of the electorate, that the promises that are being made are not going to be honored. Take the message back take the battle to Sinn Féin and uh, stop letting them get away, frankly, with myth-telling, with storytelling that is is just false. And again, so I I go back to tell a better story and seize that narrative back. You always prefer to talk about hard numbers rather than flights of fancy that I I go off on one. But going back to that corporate finance, uh, corporate taxation thing, the OECD deal that has now been struck, you mentioned that there are lots of Hurdles still to be jumped over, not least you mentioned the EU. I would mention US Congress, of course. There they are still all sorts of things that could go on. But the deal is supposed to raise an extra 150 billion euros globally because tax rates are going up. And it's going to be shared out a little bit more fairly, according to this deal, in that where activity is actually taking place, the countries will get a wee bit more taxation. So there's two opposing things going on here for Ireland's corporate tax take. On the face of it, putting it up from 12.5% to 15% would yield actually more tax revenues. But of course, the tax base against which that rate is being levied could shrink uh, for a number of reasons. The number one being is that if companies, this, this point about making taxes payable, where the activity takes place rather than where the, country, well, where the company has its headquarters, will act as an offset to that. Because we know so little about this and this stuff is so hard to forecast, it's not beyond the realms of possibility, Jim. The Ireland's corporation tax take, rather than falling, could actually rise. Is that not possible?
0: Uh, it certainly is, Chris. Uh, I, I don't buy into the really negative narrative about what happened last week. Um, I think we've recognised the inevitability of what was coming down the track for quite some time. Uh, mind you, two years ago, if, somebody, had told, if asked, somebody asked me, will our corporation tax rate eventually be increased? I'd have said, I don't think so. But in the last year, really. And I think Biden has been instrumental in this as well. Uh, Once it became a G7 stroke G20 issue, um, I think it really upped the ante on that. Um, From the the tax deal that's done, there are two pillars to it. The first pillar is, um, as you say, trying to ensure that companies pay more tax where the economic activity occurs rather than where the balance sheet resides. So that could actually cost Ireland, and it's it's the larger markets that will benefit from that because uh, some of the multinationals that who are based in Ireland and are taxed in Ireland who sell into big markets like Germany and France, uh, they will pay more tax in those jurisdictions. So uh, it's it's hard to see how Ireland could actually uh, benefit from Pillar One. Pillar Two then is the twelve and a half to fifteen percent. Um, it's a limited number of companies that that will apply to because um, for companies with turnover of less than seven hundred and fifty million, uh, they will continue to pay twelve and a half percent. Okay, so you would expect those companies to do well in a twelve and a half percent environment. They will generate corporation tax revenue. Then you look at the very small number of companies who actually will end up paying the fifteen percent tax. Some. Um, it's, it's estimated that there's about 56 um, indigenous companies that this will affect uh, companies like Glambia, Kerry, Ryanair, and so on. And then you have the the multinationals here. So um, they will end up paying more, at least a higher tax rate. So that that obviously would mean more money for the Irish tax authorities, provided, as you said, the tax base doesn't narrow and that some of those companies don't actually exit Ireland. But um, I, I think two years down the road, it's highly conceivable that we will look back on this as a storm and a teacup, uh, that it won't fundamentally change Ireland's overall position. And I have said numerous times, and I'll say it again, um, I and I think regardless of what happened on the tax side, um, I think I always believed Ireland needed to compete for foreign direct investment, not just on taxation. It needed to look at the other features of our offering. It's the quality of the labour force. So investment in education is important. The physical infrastructure and p- public infrastructure. So roads, hospitals, the education system, uh, you know, the schools and so on, um, the housing clearly is a really important issue as well so it's all of these non-tax elements of our FDI offering um, that we need to continue that sorry that we need to focus on a lot more to make sure that Ireland is a good place for those companies to do business in
1: yeah I I think it's time to be radical in terms of our thinking about the these in a way windfall corporation tax revenues and one suggestion I would make would be: look, let's let's draw a line at where they are, say are at the moment, and ring fence that, and say that if our tax take, in fact, does go up, anything above what we get at the moment is never going to be spent for current spending. That we're going to take it, and we're going to do something special with it: uh, improve Ireland's infrastructure. It'll, it'll either, we'll either invest it in. Some kind of uh, investment fund uh, you know I've seen other suggestions about sovereign wealth funds, or it will be ring fenced into improving islands, uh, roads, ports, broadband and the infrastructure that these companies actually need and that will make it a better an even, an even better place in which to come and invest, an even better place in which to live. Uh, so I, I I think that it, 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 we need to, to, to start thinking radically. And and also to think about unintended consequences, because I I worry about this dual tax rate, these these two different tax rates, depending on the size of your company, because the other job I'd like to apply for today, as well as being a PR expert for the government, is I'd like to be a corporate finance expert for a company that's about to go over the 750 million threshold and explain to them how they could split themselves up into two separate companies so they don't pay these indeed but these these extra taxes
0: in, in, indeed yeah the, the law of unintended consequences is phenomenal yeah. chris well, we're nearly up against time can i ask you one thing before we go um i've been very focused in the last week on domestic matters largely the budget because uh budget week is my week of the year if i don't get work this week um i'm screwed basically so i've been really busy focusing on those issues uh what's been happening externally how's the world
1: well it's it's as always, absolutely fascinating. If you if you think about it in financial market terms, the, the biggest event of the last few weeks, if not a couple of months, is the way in which, at best, equity markets, stock markets have stopped going up, and in some cases have been going down. Uh, and there are lots of reasons for that. Uh, markets have run out of excuses to go up. The good news has stopped. And there has been some bad news. And the bad news is, as we've talked about so many times, inflation, is proving to be a lot less temporary than people thought. I think we're getting very close to saying, let's stop calling it temporary. It's clearly here. Uh, Bond yields, the very important bond market, which determines everything in our financial lives, they've started to misbehave in a small way, both on both sides of the Atlantic. And we're looking possibly at a federal reserve now that's way behind the curve. That's a piece of jargon saying that it's not tightening soon enough. Uh, And people are worried about this. Uh, The newest thing in all of that that gives all of that an extra twist, if you like, particularly the inflation story, but also the growth story, is the fact that energy prices have gone through the roof, not just gas prices, which have attracted all the headlines in Europe, particularly the UK, but oil prices are steadily going up as well. So that takes a bite out of all of our incomes. And it, and it, it, it means that future growth will be less than it otherwise would have been. And I think the third related thing that's got people worried markets in particular is that growth has actually slowed we talked about china and asia that's slowed america this week we had much weaker than expected jobs numbers and it looks like well U- europe really didn't take off in the first place but uh, european growth we're not in a, we're not in recession territory or anything like that but that very vigorous V-shaped recovery that occurred as economies reopened has certainly flattened somewhat. So so the story is not great. It's not awful, but uh, there's plenty of nervousness out there. And you can see that reflected in, in asset prices, particularly stock markets.
0: Thanks, Chris. Uh, listen, we'll call it there. Um, I think we will talk again in the aftermath of the budget just to pick through the entrails of what the two ministers deliver on Tuesday.
1: So We'll look forward to that. Yeah, Cheers, Enjoy Jim. the
0: rest of your weekend, okay? Bye. Enjoy, Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power, on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify,